We're going to be in uh, the book of Daniel, and while you're turning there, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we can set aside for you, that we can learn about you and your word. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would be strengthened, encouraged, and edified by what we hear, that we would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Daniel is, it's, it's big, it's fantastic, we could spend months in any one chapter, and yet tonight we're going to try to just give an overview of the whole book to give an impression about the life of Daniel, a very remarkable character in the Bible. And I don't use the word character meaning it's not real, of course it's real. And on that note, we should point out that Daniel is really the only person in the Bible, other than Jesus, and some people say Joseph, but where there's nothing evil said of him. There's no Daniel and Bathsheba, or Moses killing the Egyptian. And that does not mean we're not saying that Daniel was perfect or that he didn't sin. Of course he did. He had Adam's fallen nature, absolutely. But it does show this was a very righteous man. He prayed, as we'll see, a lot. He was very bold with his God. And his life... We're going to try to just give an impression by looking at some of the major events of this whole book, and then, hopefully if we don't forget or don't have enough time to see how it affected life even hundreds of years after his time. Daniel chapter 1, and it starts out, well, I'll have to do a lot of summarizing, uh, putting it in my own words, because if we're going to try to get through 12 chapters, we're not going to read it all. Daniel is very, very likely a teenager when God brings Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. They surround Jerusalem because they have not been obeying God. They haven't let this land rest every seventh year. And God brings the Babylonians. They capture the Jewish people. They destroy the city, the sanctuary. They take, as we'll see here, they take the, the good things out of the temple, the stuff made of gold. They take this all back to Babylon. But just understand, this major historical event, Daniel's a teenager, and he is taken back. Let's uh, start in verse 1. The third year in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Those vessels will play a big part in one of the chapters in Daniel later on. They then, in the next several verses, they take some of the best young guys that they thought were of the Jews. The Babylonians took them and they set them aside for a special project back in Babylon. They were going to feed them a special meal. They were going to eat of the king's portion. They were going to be fed from his provisions because they were going to raise some of these guys that they thought had a good possible future. Maybe they had, I think it says that they were maybe some of the king's kids and their princes. They were going to prepare some of these men for service back in the home country of Babylon. Daniel is one of those guys. Also, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Characters we'll see in a little bit who are Daniel's friends, they are also of this group that are set aside. And in chapter 1, they're going to feed them a certain thing because they want to prepare them specially, but Daniel says, 
In my opinion, I'll be defiled if I eat that stuff. That, that's, that's dedicated to your king. I'm not doing that. And he convinces the captain over this group of men, let me eat what I want. Let me and my friends eat what we want and we'll show you the difference. And this is what they do. And you see down in verse 20, in all the matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are already rising to the top, you can see. Now, think human nature-wise. Those that are in that group of next-generation wise men, possible kings, princes, foreigners are brought in. They don't even eat our stuff, and yet the king finds them a lot more wise, more understanding, they know how the world works a lot better than us. What I'm getting across early on here is jealousy. They don't look kindly, and you can we've all been there, it's human nature. This could play out at any place, any time throughout all human history. The hometown Babylonians are not crazy that these guys are quickly rising in the ranks in the eyes of the king. Chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers, sorcerers, the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before him. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. This is a big deal, number one, because the king, he says his sleep leaves him. And he's, you'll see how troubled he was by it, and yet, as we see here, he can't remember what he dreamed. He does know that it bothered him a lot. And in verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Now this is a little interesting. The king is not just asking them to interpret the dream. Did you catch what he said there? He said, tell me what I dreamed. Otherwise, we cut you in pieces, your wives, your family, and everything you own becomes a dunghill. They respond as any of us would. Sir, are, are you kidding? Nothing has ever been asked of anyone to tell you what your dream is, much less than go on and interpret exactly what it means. But the king is... In verse 8, the king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that ye can show the interpretation thereof. Look at their response in verse 10. They answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at at any magician, astrologer, or or Chaldean. We only read that to show you the importance of what is about to take place. Everybody in the room agrees. Everybody in the palace agrees. This can't be done. It's crazy. How could he even ask us this? And yet you know the story. They send a captain of the guard to go kill all these people because they can't do it. And the guy in charge of that task, of killing these magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, 
He comes to Daniel's house. He is considered one of, he's in that category. He's clearly not by birth and he's not by his behavior, but they put him out of no, no choice of his own as one of these guys. When they come into his room and he says, well, what, what's, what's, what's the big hurry here? They tell him. Nobody can answer this dream. That's for you guys. You're all dying. Daniel says in verse 15, he says to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in, desired of the king that he would give him time that he would show the king the interpretation. Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. We will later know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. That Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This is, you get a great insight into the character, the, the behavior of Daniel here. Under pressure, under the biggest of guns, what does he do? He gets a prayer meeting started. It's not just him, he's telling fellas, his closest Jewish friends, we're praying. And we need God to step in. And you don't see any panic in these verses. This Daniel's life is marked by his confidence toward God. It's amazing. So Daniel, in the next verses, he spends the night, they're praying, and he has a vision in the night. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. God has showed him in a vision. So he goes to the king. And he goes to the king, and of course, what does he have to do? He has to tell the king what his dream in the first place was. This is amazing. See, only God can do these things. So what the book of Daniel is, is it's, it's a miracle almost in every third verse. We, we read through it because we kind of know it, and, and you don't put the pieces together. How many times an angel shows up to tell him something? How many times God reveals something to him that nobody on planet Earth knows. He goes in and he tells the king the vision. And the vision that he saw was that the king saw an image. An image of a, a almost a, a human statue or a human image. The head was of gold. The, the, the breast and bellies was silver. And the waist, the thighs was brass. And the feet and the rest of the legs was iron. And, of course, we could spend a lot of time there. We're not. After telling him that, he, he points out that Nebuchadnezzar is part of this. He's the, arid, the, the first part of this image. He is the head of gold. He is the most extravagant, the most luxurious, powerful king that the world has known. And the way the vision goes, that the world probably will know. Nebuchadnezzar was it. There's a reason this vision points him out as gold. And the people that come after him are a little bit less in stature. Silver, brass, iron. When he tells him this, verse 28, There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head are these. And he goes on to tell what we just described. And when you get down to verse 46, 
Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel. Now, some translations or some commentaries are going to say that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped Daniel's God. It may be the case. I'm not, not an expert. I don't know. It is worth pointing out that a pagan king that went and captured these Jewish people, destroyed their city, their temple, and brought them back here as servants, as whatever he wanted them to be. He is now doing what? He's worshipping either Daniel or Daniel's God. That's how impressive Daniel's day and night has been. Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that ruled the part of the, of the known world, and what Daniel has done in front of him has so impressed him. Look at verse 48. He worshipped and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is, that your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldest reveal this secret. Intentionally trying to impress upon you what is starting to take place around Daniel and his reputation in Babylon. This is the first thing that the Bible points out is he didn't eat what they ate. He set himself apart, did what he wanted to do with just his God and the Bible, and he was ten times wiser, of more understanding. He then interprets a dream that nobody could even, nobody could interpret, but nobody even knew what it was, to the point that this king is bowing down in worship in the direction of Daniel and his God. He's making waves, is what we're saying. The next chapter, chapter 3, is a little bit predictable if you know human nature. If you have chapter headings in your Bible, mine says the fiery furnace. This is one where we, we've heard a lot of sermons and we should because it's fantastic. Why do Daniel's three friends get thrown into the fiery furnace? Because the people in their group, the princes, the people that are being raised up of the next generation of leadership, <clears throat> they see what's happening. Daniel and his three guys, they keep getting promoted. And the point of this is, and if you've ever experienced it, jealousy is a powerful thing. Jealousy will drive people to do things that they would normally never think of. And they set this up so that these three Jewish guys are forced <clears throat> to make a choice. There's an image set up. And it says in verse 2, in verse 1 it says that the height of this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up was three score or 60 cubits and the breadth six cubits. And he set this thing up and when the music played, if you did not drop down to your knees and worship this thing, you got thrown in the fiery furnace. <clears throat> Keep in mind there, we'll come back to this if we don't forget. That image... It has a lot of sixes surrounding it. Sixty cubits high, six in breadth. If you don't fall down and worship it, you die. <clears throat> when it comes time for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 16 to make their decision, they say, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. It's been put to them, you either bow before this or you go in the furnace. And their response without blinking, is 
bring it. How many Christians, how many people are committed to God enough that you would put your life in His hands as these men did? The book of Daniel is amazing for backbone. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able. They have no doubt that God is able. They do not think His right arm has shrunk. He is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of Thine hand, O King. But if not, even if He doesn't, be it known unto Thee. In other words, we want You to know something. We will not serve Thy gods, nor worship the golden image which Thou hast set up. So into the furnace they go. And we know how this all ends. They get burned up, we never hear from them again, and the whole world worships something. No. Not only do they survive, and of course any deliverance of coming out of that fire would be a miracle, but it says they didn't even smell of smoke. This is step three that makes an enormous impression on the Babylonians. Remember, we're building a case here. They captured all these people in Jerusalem. They brought them back. And the one guy, he can tell a dream that nobody even knows. And he can also interpret it about the future of mankind. The other three, we throw them in a burning, fiery furnace and they start a dance party. And it so happens that something on the inside of there that looks like the Son of God is with them. Somebody seems to be on their side. If you don't think that way, if you don't put yourself in their position, this stuff can pass over. Think about the reputation of these four individuals that is starting to build. So they pull them out of the fiery furnace. And in verse 27, it says that they didn't have the smell of smoke on them. I think it's in the next few verses, yes, that the people that accuse them, they take them and their families, and they throw them into the fiery furnace. And there's a recurring pattern here. Anybody that tries to trap Daniel and his three friends, try to kill them, get them out of favor with the king, what happens? They themselves end up in a not-so-good place. If you're ever experiencing something in your life where you think uh, you're up against it, up against the wall where there's nobody else but you that is believing what's right, doing what's right. There's nobody but you that maybe worships the one true God and you think, is, is this really worth it? Are we, are we affecting anybody? These four guys are an example. Because we will not bow. And in the end, it makes a difference. First of all, it makes a difference for us as individuals who are going through that. But it makes a difference in the towns, tribes, the nations that surround us. People see it. Chapter 4. He's got a second dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he sees this enormous tree that is cut down. They do some preservation things to it, and after a certain amount of time passes over, this tree starts to grow again. And Daniel comes in and he tells Nebuchadnezzar that, Sir, this tree is you. You are going to be cut down. And after a certain period of time, you're going to come back to yourself. 
And after telling this stuff to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, you know, you got a chance to repent here. You don't have to have this happen if you just lose some of your pride. And in ver, that's Daniel saying that in verse 27. And in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And people, we have some outside biblical information of what that palace was very likely like. It was one of the wonders of the world. The hanging gardens in Babylon, there's a reason he was the gold head in that image. Babylon was amazing. And the pride got to him. Verse 29, verse 30, The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And it goes on to describe that he basically he becomes insane and he ends up spending seven years outdoors. His hair grows long, his fingernails. He it describes him as eating the grass like the oxen. The dew is on him like it is the rest of the animals. He's insane for seven years. And then his mind comes back to him at the end of that, just as his dream that Daniel interpreted predicted. And that's in verse 34 and 35 and 36. This adds another checklist to what has taken place in Daniel's life since they brought this kid as a teenage boy out of Jerusalem. He's now told King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's come to pass exactly, that as he's saying, I've built this great kingdom, as the words were in his mouth, the God that Daniel prays to, speaks from heaven and says, the kingdom is taken from you. And for the exact amount of time that Daniel said it would happen, seven years. Chapter 5. Now chapter 5 jumps ahead chronologically. A lot of time has now passed. Because this chapter is about Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's either son or grandson. Uh, Bible languages, those words are often interchangeable. Father, grandfather. I pretty I would say that this guy is probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He has, in chapter 5, a heap big party. <clears throat> in chapter, verse 4, it says, They drank wine, praised the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and of stone. So, they're not performing all that godly, shall we say. They're having a drunken stupor and they're worshiping all the false gods we can name. If it's made of matter, they're worshiping it. And what we didn't read is they went into the treasure where they had brought back these golden vessels out of the temple in Israel from Jerusalem when they captured all these people. And they brought those vessels out to have a party with, to drink out of them, to spray their champagne, to do whatever it is that they were doing. And this act of hedonism and this act of this party atmosphere, it brings something out of the God of heaven. Because in verse 5 it says, The same hour came forth a finger of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace 
and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And that's not saying that a man walked up there and started writing. It's just the picture of a man's hand, not attached to anything, and it is writing language. Look at verse 6. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that, this is Bible speak for what a baby does to a diaper. The joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. God does have a sense of humor. This guy who was throwing this party needed a change of pants. That's what that says. That's how scared he was. And in his drunkenness, he turns to the wise men and he says, somebody tell me what this is, what is written over here. And of course they go through and nobody can do it. But verse 10 says that the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say thy father, made master over all the magicians. The queen, she remembers. We got a guy around here who can probably tell us exactly what's going on. She was there in Nebuchadnezzar's time. She knows what's happened and she tells these guys, uh, you better go find Daniel. At this time, Daniel is probably a quite an elderly guy. A lot of time has passed. They go and they bring him in and Daniel interprets what is written on there. And down in verses 20, starting at verse 25, and it says, This is the interpretation of the thing, that God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Merds and the, the Medes and the Persians. The writing that was on that wall, the message from God was that your king is going to be take, uh, your kingdom is going to be taken from you tonight. Now, this event, it deserves some time. Because outside of our Bible, if we just take our Bible and throw it away and open up our history books, our history books tell us about this story. That the Medes and the Persians, unbeknownst to everybody that's in this room, this palace, the Medes and the Persians have been walking, marching toward Babylon. See, Babylon was impenetrable. Nobody even attacked it because they thought it was impossible. The walls around this thing were so wide they could do chariot races on it. It was enormous. There was a moat. The Euphrates River came down and they dug the Euphrates River so a moat went around and the city was in the middle of it. The water came into the city underneath the gates and that's why the city was so prosperous. They didn't have to go anywhere to get water. They could divert this down every street. And everybody, basically, you didn't have running water but it was the closest thing to it. The Medes and the Persians few days before these guys are partying, start digging a trench upriver to divert it. This is what history tells us. The Bible does not quite include some of it. It makes reference to it. But the Medes and the Persians, they divert this river so that there's now no moat. 
And, and the, they can crawl underneath the city gates. Nobody has to open up the gates for them. They can crawl under. And when they do, they find out everybody's in there partying, having this drunken stupor. And they take the city without firing a shot. And the writing on the wall is telling them that as it happens. The next verse, verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom. In that very night, he lost his kingdom. And the Medes and the Persians got underneath that gate, came into the city and captured it while those guys were all at one big party. Now that's interesting. But there is something, there is a miraculous part of this story that is in Isaiah 44. Keep a finger here. <clears throat> in Isaiah, which was written 150 at least years before the time of Daniel, before the time when the Medes and the Persians conquered that city, a hundred and fifty years before is when Isaiah was. And these are the words Isaiah wrote under the inspiration of God. Isaiah chapter 44. Verse 27. Now verse 26, he's talking about Jerusalem being rebuilt, that someday we're going to go back to Israel. That saith to the deep, that's water, be dry and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. He's talking about rivers drying up and a guy named Cyrus. Chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron the general, the Medes and the Persians, that led that was Cyrus the Great. They today, in the British Museum, have a, a, a pillar form stone that Cyrus wrote. And what he wrote on there, part of him giving the decree to let the Jews go back to Israel to rebuild their city and their temple. 150 years before that ever took place, God, by name, wrote a letter to Cyrus. He says, I call you by name, Cyrus. And he talks about the riverbed drying up before him, that the gates would not be shut. And when they crawled into the city, all those gates that let the waters go down the streets, they're all open, because they were not expecting anything. He loosed the loins of kings for this guy, there are extra-biblical sources that tell us, that indicate, and I tend to believe it, that Daniel met Cyrus outside with a scroll of Isaiah and showed him the letter that God had written to him. Called him by name. Can you imagine that? The, uh, the impact would it make on somebody who's even a pagan, who doesn't even know God. 
I walk here and something that was written a hundred years before I was ever born, it calls me by name and it tells me how I'm going to get in the city that I've just done. And it tells me that when I, what in chapter 44, verse 28, that I'm going to tell the Israelis they can go back and rebuild their city. It made an impression on Cyrus. And he does just that. Under his kingdom, they give this decree and they let all these captives, you guys can now, you can go back. God started all of this 150 years before Cyrus was born. There, there are things contained in your Bible that are more important than anything in our Smithsonian's, more important than anything in our National Archives or kept under guard, under bulletproof glass. The things that are in our Bible are past, present, and future. It worked in Daniel's day, and there's a lot still to come that will be taking place in our day if the Lord tarries in the future. What God says, it always comes to pass. He even names this guy by name. It says he even talks about taking him by hand and leading him into Babylon. It's amazing. Back to Daniel. <clears throat> so what have we known so far? This teenage kid Daniel is brought. <clears throat> he doesn't eat what the king's people eat, and yet he's ten times better looking, ten times wiser, smarter, great understanding. He tells the king the very dream that he has, and then he interprets it for him. The thing that all the magicians agreed, they all raised their hand and said, nobody can do that. Nobody on earth. They then have, a, he has another dream, and he interprets that dream. His three friends get thrown in a fiery furnace. And nothing happens to them except they get led by the hand out by the Son of God. The reputation of Daniel, he, he's top shelf. In his elder age, they go and they bring this guy out because there's a handwriting on the wall that some spirit, maybe God did it, he comes out, he reads it, and in that very night, it comes to pass. The kingdom is taken from them. And these Medes and the Persians enter the city and they take it. So now, they're still in Babylon, as we read, but it's the Medes, the Persians, they're in charge. We're going to read about Darius. Darius was a Medo-Persian. So chapter 6 is... Another boring thing. Oh, he just gets thrown in a lion's den. It, it just keeps raising. <clears throat> we, we, we know this chapter, so we won't go through a, a lot of it in detail. Jealousy is another part of this. This is the last attempt that we read about where these people try to get Daniel. They make up this law that Darius, if you give a law... And you put it in writing, it can't be changed. And they got him to sign this thing that said you can only pray to his God. <clears throat> they knew Daniel would, he wouldn't stop. They thought they would trap him in this, and they do, because Daniel goes home with his windows open. He prays toward Jerusalem. Everybody can see, you see, he, he, has, he has contempt for our God. He's only praying to the God of the Bible, of the, the Jews. So the... Discipline for this is the king can't change it. He, he loves Daniel. He doesn't want to do this, but for his own sake and for his reputation, they throw Daniel in the lion's den and they set a stone over it. And in verse 19, the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. 
And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God. Who does this king probably recognize as maybe the guy we should be worshiping? Has thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths that they have not hurt me for as much as before him innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. What a testimony. Because innocency was found in me. Daniel had confidence in his lifestyle, didn't he? All, all these pages, uh, when we were in, in D.C., the National Art Gallery, they had the, this big picture. Almost everything in there is biblically related. They're all, the people in the last 500 years, the Christian culture, all the painters, and I don't know what their lives were if they themselves were Christian, but they painted all these Christian scenarios, pictures. The one of Daniel in the lion's den by, you remember, don't remember who it was, somebody, one of those Italian famous people. In the cave, the lions and the angels sitting there with Daniel. It's amazing. And almost all of our art is like that. Mary, Jesus, Joseph, Moses, David, Samson, all the great characters. It's what our art used to be. That's why people used to have art degrees. They actually studied those things. Nowadays, shall we just say not so much? Daniel in the lion's den. What do you think this has now cemented for his reputation? Because the guys that accused him of praying to the wrong God, what happens to them? They get brought and they get thrown in this den. And the Bible says their bodies don't even hit the floor. Their wives, their kids, everything got thrown in there. And the lions ate them before they got down there. We know those lions weren't full. And that's why they didn't eat Daniel. They didn't eat Daniel... Because God was watching over him. Makes a difference who you serve. It makes a difference if you're God's or if you're not God's. His kids need to act with probably some confidence. And this is the last time we have recorded that somebody tries this stuff on Daniel and his friends. Huh, go figure. There probably wasn't a long line of people waiting to accuse Daniel of something, shall we say, amiss. Those people ended up in not good places. And Daniel is now unapproachable. The lions won't eat him. Think of what you would think about if we had somebody in our time that had these events surrounded their life. Just any one of these things. Daniel has five of them so far. As we've already seen in one verse, when the queen calls him out, they said, we think the the spirit of the gods is in this guy. He can probably read the handwriting on the wall. They already thought of him as he might even be godlike. I'm not here trying to teach that there's something God, so something like that about Daniel. I'm just saying that his righteous behavior made an impact. And as we'll see, as we even get in the book of Matthew, there's probably some of these events that are responsible for what takes place in Matthew chapter 2. When Daniel now starts to talk, do you think people would take notice? I've got to imagine that they were chiseling in stone 
a lot of the things Daniel said. Now, chapter 7, 8, there's a, some fantastic things in there. And I'll, I'm not going to read any of the verses. It, it just, there are some visions that Daniel has where he predicts the future because there were the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians conquered them. And who came and conquered the Medes and the Persians? The Greeks. And who was in charge of them? Alexander. Maybe. He's definitely one of the top three military geniuses, conquerors of all time. Tons of people would say he is the top. Lightning strikes, he conquered the known world and died at 33, 32. And when he died, his four generals took over and split up the kingdom. Daniel, years, decades in advance, predicts that in chapters 7 and 8. It's amazing. It is, he even goes on to talk about which of the four generals would fight each other, would gain dominance, and that their seed, their kids after them, to the point that atheists, people that don't like the Bible, they argue that Daniel, it, it had to have been, been written way after the time of Alexander the Great. Nobody could have gotten that right. It's that accurate. Daniel told those things. Now we're in chapter 9. <clears throat> and in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by, by books, this guy's a reader, the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, this episode of a 70-year period of them being removed off the land and taken to Babylon, that's one of the more well-known events in the Bible. Dan, because God took the pagan people, just like he promised, he said, if you guys don't follow my law, I'll be with them, and I'll bring them against you and remove you off. And that's what he did for 70 years. Daniel, this verse tells us, he's reading Jeremiah, and what does he realize? Goes over to the calendar on the wall, starts counting the number of times uh, he's marked off the years since he was in Jerusalem, and he knows it's getting close. So what does that mean? How old is Daniel here? If he was taken at, say, just a, a random guess, 13 or 14, add 70, he, he's in his 80s now. 70 years are coming to an end, and he knows that he's probably the only guy there that knows this. Because he not only knows what God says, he believes what God says. And so he is now praying. The first, Most of chapter 9 is his prayer, and he is praying to God, Lord, we have sinned against you like nobody has. And he prays, not just for himself. Who does he pray for? His people, the nation. On their behalf. Now, there's somebody, most of us, are we looking to pray for other people on, on, and even their sins? Or do we got a baseball game? We got to go to the store. I got to get my hair cut. Well, there's a lot of reasons we can get up off our knees and go home. Daniel stays to pray for who? The nation of his people. And while he is confessing their Sins. See, this guy. This Daniel is quite an example. While he is doing that, a special visitor shows up. Gabriel is sent from heaven to give him some special information. Now, maybe, well, I'll just tell you what my opinion. 
Daniel chapter 9 and starting at verse 24 is easily in the top three most important verses in the entire Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. Because everybody who was a Jew knew about this Messiah who was supposed to come someday from somewhere at some time. And they had some specifics. He's got to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. Isaiah said he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14. There are some other things. He's going to be born in the tribe of Judah. We know that. But I mean, how, how are we ever going to really identify? Are we just going to set people in Bethlehem for the next 3,000 years trying to identify this guy? The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and tells him the exact time when to expect it. This is amazing. Because what is the destination of every human being on earth? What decision do they have to make? Was Jesus the Messiah or wasn't he? That is the question for every human that ever has been born, ever will be born. And Daniel chapter 9 goes light years down the road to prove it, that Jesus was that person. Daniel 9, and in verse 25 it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. What's that talking about? Remember, they've been taken off of Jerusalem, they've been brought to Babylon, that's where they're at. And in Babylon, he's receiving this message that from the time they give the commandment that you guys can go back Get your calendar out and start marking off years because an exact number, an exact number will pass. Verse 25, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, until he gets here, it shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. Bible language, you dig into to that, that is talking about a week of years. A seven-year grouping of years, and there are 70 of them total. 62 and 7. There's going to be 69 times 7. 483 years. Think of that. I would imagine Daniel, you know, he's in his 80s, who knows, 90s. When he receives this, at least he knows, well, I'm not going to be able to, I won't be here to see this. But as he writes this down, and the angel said to know and to understand. That means somebody is supposed to understand what's being given, the information, and probably be prepared when he gets here, correct? You ever wondered why Israel's judgment was so severe? And it was. God, he's bringing them back. He has brought them back. His plan is to, to, he's going to deal with the world through them yet. But there was a 2,000 year period there where it was severe. And one reason why was he told them the exact time when Jesus would come. And when he got here, they tried to kill him almost every day he was here. Please don't ever infer anything I say like that to mean that I hate Jews. I have a problem with, that doesn't mean that at all. We're just being biblically, historically accurate of what has taken place. Because it's not even true for every single one. Their blindness, the Bible says, is in part. Tells us the exact time. And look what else it says. Verse 26. And three score and two weeks, what shall happen? The Messiah shall be cut off. What's that mean? You dig into the language there and it's talking about a capital crime 
punishment, like what we would call the electric chair. They're indicating that the government is not going to like this guy. He is cut off. He's going to die. What's the next phrase? But not for himself. You and I that live 2,000 years on this side of Jesus, we know what that means, don't we? He didn't die because he committed a sin. He didn't die because Jesus did something wrong. Why did he die? He died for us to pay the penalty for mankind. Now in Daniel's day, who knows if he knew what that even meant. He's not going to die for himself. Who knows? It also says that the people of the prince that shall come, they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. You know what should be associated with the arrival of the Messiah? The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. What happened shortly after Jesus went to the right hand of the Father? The Romans came, surrounded Jerusalem, and they destroyed it. If we're going to call somebody the Messiah, according to this verse, he has to come at a certain time, and two things have to be associated with him. The city, Jerusalem, has to be destroyed. The sanctuary has to be destroyed, according to that verse. Now, remember, remember, remember who is receiving this. This is Daniel, the guy who has a miracle at every turn in this kingdom of Babylon. I imagine there weren't too many people that wanted to look in his direction, weren't going to spit in his direction. Daniel was top-notch authority. It tells us in other verses that the, the rulers, they sought to make him ruler over their kingdom. He was second in command almost all the time. He was there second or third. He is the guy that receives this note from an angel from heaven that the Messiah is coming and at this time. You think that information maybe got handed down to certain people. Remember, he's part of a group of people that train leaders. The princes, the eunuchs, those people that were set aside to learn the ways of the kingdom, to learn royal traditions. I have to believe that Daniel, as the angel said, know this and understand it. When we now turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now what's all contained in that verse? Several or some people came from the east and if you, anybody good in geography, in your map, your mental map, you have the Mediterranean Sea. And way over on the east side of it is Israel, Jerusalem. On the other side of Israel today is Jordan. And then you have some of Iraq, where Babylon was, on the east of Israel. This verse says that these people came from the east, from the, from the Babylon area. Now it doesn't tell us that Daniel gave information to people that passed it down for 500 years and those guys ended up coming. To me, a fair reading of the Scriptures, I think that's exactly what happened. How would these people even know that the Messiah is being born? Herod didn't know it. It's his county. He's basically the mayor, the county commissioner. He has no idea. It says in the next verse, He turns to his people and says, where is he supposed to be born? And they go look in their Bibles, 
And they say, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. These guys show up, traveled from deserts away and say, Sir, where is he that's born king of the Jews? They know he's being born. They just don't know exactly what house. It's amazing. We don't even think about it. Well, they're just people showing up, I guess. They just got an app that told them he's probably being born about now. How would they know? It's amazing to even think about it. But after studying the life of Daniel and the high regard that he was held in, in that country in Babylon, east of Israel, the information that he received, this prophecy that as soon as they give a commandment that we can all go back to Jerusalem, start counting. I think that information was handed down to people in, not Jerusalem, because as we found out, all those people seem to forgot about it. We don't have any record of somebody in Israel who pulled out the book of Daniel and read, he should be here. These guys from the east show up. And their specific question is, somebody should be being born right now that is king of the Jews. Where is he? <laughs> That's amazing to think about. And these guys, what did they bring with them? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They had royal type gifts. These would have been people like princes, like the eunuchs, like the royal court from back there in Babylon. This man Daniel, what a life he lived. He affected the history of the earth and even these people going to seek someone that he had talked about. The king that this Daniel talked about. Lions couldn't touch him. He understood all the dreams. His friends could not be hurt by the fiery furnace. Maybe we ought to listen to that guy. Can't hardly resist. In, what was it? The, the Forget what chapter. The, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, it's not a dream, excuse me. He sets up the image and if people don't bow down and worship that thing, then they get thrown in the fiery furnace. That thing sounds a lot like Revelation. There's an image that people are required to worship. If they don't worship it, in Revelation you get beheaded. In Daniel you get thrown in the fiery furnace. It's a picture of tribulation. What happens when the people are put in tribulation in the fire? The Son of God comes down grabs their hand and walks them through it. That whole image is almost a picture of what takes place in the book of Revelation. And who were those three guys in the fiery furnace? The beginning of that chapter, it calls them the Jews. Three guys, the Jews. They were accused of something, so they got thrown in the fiery furnace. Everybody in the world looks in there and they see that the Son of God is in there with them. They found Him and here they come out of it. Couldn't help. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that the things that we have read in your Bible, that they would be seed in our hearts, that they would grow to fruition. Lord, we pray for Pastor, that wherever he is, that you would redeem the time, that travel would be made easy and quick and smooth. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring him home safe. In Jesus' name, amen.